Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook. And this week, as ever, I'm joined by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. And uh, we're going to kick off, as always, Simon, by talking about the market and what's been going on this week. Uh, well, as always, it's been a very interesting week. The numbers are, certainly for the first four trading days of the week, that the investment companies were in positive territory, up about 0.1%. And that represented an outperformance of the wider UK market. The FTSE All Share was down 1% those first four days. Though actually, as we record this on Friday at lunchtime, the market has taken another step down. So I suspect uh, both investment companies and the UK market will end up in negative territory for the week. In terms of the sector average discount for investment trust companies, that actually narrowed in uh, across those first four days. It went from about 2.7% to 1.9%. And it's worth actually just looking at how the sector has performed now year to date. Certainly to the end of Thursday, it was up 14.8%. That was still a little bit behind the wider UK market, the FTSE All Share up 16.5%. But inflation remains the key focus of the market. There were some developments this week. So we saw that US consumer prices jumped in October at the fastest pace, apparently, in three decades. In terms of the UK, well, the UK inflation number came in higher than expected. I think it was CPI came in at 4.2%. That was the highest level in 10 years. And a lot of speculation how the various central banks will respond to this. Apparently, the Federal Reserve came out this week and questioned whether a rate rise would be needed next year. And there was also some kind of more bad news coming from Europe in terms of the fourth COVID wave as well. And that, I think, coupled with the, the tensions that appear to be building in Ukraine at the moment, I think it certainly has caused a bit of a market wobble as the week has gone on. However, possibly I'm being a bit too gloomy. I mean, some people would argue it's you know the darkest before the dawn. But uh, certainly when you talk to investment managers, they remain relatively positive overall. And they point to the fact that underlying earnings continue to trend upwards. Indeed, they do. I was reading that in terms of corporate earnings this year, I mean, a great majority of companies have come in with earnings that are above the original estimates or consensus estimates. But against that, people are downgrading their expectations for next year. So it's a, it's a bit of a balance as always. But uh, I don't think one could be unhappy about a return over the course of the year, if that maintained to the end of the year of, you know, 15% is always a very good good return across the piece. So uh, I think that's a positive, at least. And if we get the normal kind of end of year run on, you know, it tends not to be a period which is of weak markets, but uh, you never know. We certainly end the year in good shape, we hope, but uh, next year is, as always, up for grabs. Let's move on and talk about some specifics then. Let's talk about some corporate announcements this week. Uh, we normally kick off this way. And let's kick off by talking about, there have been couple of comments from both Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH, and Triple Point Social Housing REIT, ticker SOHO, SOHO. They've uh, got some things in common they want to talk about, but uh, perhaps you can just take us through what they've had to say, uh, Simon. So the development this week for both those uh, investment companies with their respective boards noted the recent regulatory judgment by the regulator of social housing in respect of a housing association called Falcon, Falcon Housing Association. And apparently the regulator has deemed Falcon as non-compliant with regards to elements of the governance and financial viability standard. Now, at the end of March this year, Falcon represented just under 20% of Civitas Social Housing's annualised rent roll, so quite a significant element. Civitas came out and said, well, they noted this, but the rent collection has continued as normal, and the expectation is that that will remain the case. And they also made the point that Falcon has committed to continue to engage with the regulator and Civitas in its own right will continue its supportive relationship with Falcon and its other counterparties as well. In terms of Triple Point Social Housing, uh, also known as SOHO, their exposure to Falcon is also uh, pretty significant. Actually, they've got 65 assets leased to Falcon and they were valued at about £62 million at the end of September. And Falcon represents just over 10% of the portfolio value and about 10% of the rent roll as well. And again, they made the point that all the rent continues to be paid in full. So what does this mean to the sector? What does this mean to shareholders? Well, we have seen a number 
of these regulatory judgments coming from the regulator. And it's part of their duty to look at the uh, the governance and financial viabilities of these housing associations. And clearly, they are flagging up a number of issues. And we've seen that in, in regard to Civitas and, and Triple Point before. You know, you pay your money, takes your choice. Clearly, it, it is a, a positive development for this particular subsector. But again, there'll be those people, including no doubt Civitas and Triple One, who'll say, well, we've seen this before and we'll work our way through these issues. But essentially, the day-to-day operations of the day-to-day kind of rent collection has not been impacted by this. The underlying issue here is, as we know, there's been the short seller has raised issues about uh, Civitas's business model, effectively, and what they will regard as overexposure to uh, housing associations that... uh, don't have their long-term liabilities effectively covered. I think that's really the issue. So the underlying performance of the trust continues to be as it was, but I guess the issue is about what the regulator will do, first of all, and secondly, whether this fact that there is this mismatch between the the balance sheet, if you like, of the uh, housing associations and the returns that Civitas are making, whether those returns could be interrupted. I guess that's really the issue. What's the market verdict? We know the shares have sold off for both those trusts have sold off significantly and gone to uh, discounts, whereas before they were at premiums, before this all blew up. What's been happening more recently? Have the efforts by the two trusts to you know, put the record straight, as they would say, have they borne fruit so far? Both of those funds are trading on a, a discount at the moment. So um, if you look at Civitas, it's on a 12% discount with a share price uh, Sunday at the close of Thursday, just under 94p. I mean, it's been a bit lower than that in recent times, uh, and they have been supportive in terms of using share buybacks. Triple point social housing, that's also on a discount, probably about a 9% discount or so. And that compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about 1%. So you can see it has been derated. So there are definitely headwinds against this area of the marketplace and, and a few questions to be answered. But I think the other point to make is that it does underline the importance of actually looking at uh, some of these social housing investment trusts, looking at their business models rather more detailed than perhaps we've all done so far. I mean, if you look at something like uh, Home REIT, for example, which is in the same broad sector, but it has a very different uh, business model and exposure to Civitas and Triple Point, and uh, that's still trading on a premium, I think. Absolutely right. 15% premium at the moment. And obviously, they raised additional capital not that long ago. So yes, I think they are seem to be distinct. Okay, well, we'll watch that one quite closely. I mean, uh, I think the issue for shareholders here is is either that Civitas and Triple Point are bargains at this point, uh, or that there are more fundamental questions which make them something you don't necessarily want to be involved in. There are some risks there, perhaps that you weren't appreciated before. That one is to play out, I think. Let's move on and talk about Scottish Investment Trust, ticker SCIN or SKIN. We know that that is uh, going to be disappearing, sadly, after 135 years next year. Uh, It's going to be combined into, I think is a way to put it, uh, JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. Uh, What's the update on that one? Yeah, so this week the circular was published regarding details of how these two companies will come together uh, without kind of getting too technical. Effectively, the process will be in two stages. So JP Morgan Asset Management will be initially appointed to manage Scottish Investment Trust portfolio. And at that stage, it will adopt the same investment strategy as JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. So that will require shareholder approval, and that will be at a general meeting on the 9th of December, with the appointment of JP Morgan expected on about the 21st of January. So that's stage one. Stage two, and this is a reflection actually that Scottish Investment Trust is a self-managed investment trust, so it has some long-term debt and it has a pension scheme, and these are the kind of issues that need to be resolved. So this is going to take a little bit longer, and the expectation at the moment is that shareholder support for the combination, I think for that we can read merger, to be honest, will be sought at general meetings expecting in the first quarter of next year, with the idea being that the two companies will actually officially come together by the end of the first quarter of next year. Okay, so the interesting point about that is that if you're an investor in Scottish Investment Trust, or if you're not an investor in Scottish Investment Trust, we do at least now now have a pretty good idea of the date at which the portfolio is actually going to change, and therefore adopt the policy that uh, JP Morgan Global Growth and Income is already pursuing. And as a result of that, I think it now looks pretty, obviously, it's certain that this thing is going to go through, I would say. So what's been happening to the share price of Scottish Investment Trust? If you had bought it after the announcement, still on a 10% discount or whatever it was, uh, how would you have done? Well, it's been re-rated, and perhaps that's not a surprise given that the JP Morgan Fund has traded on a premium, is trading on a premium. So what we've seen is that the share price of Scottish Investment Trust has jumped up about 12% or so 
over the last month. That compares with a rise of 2% for the NAV. So really the discount has materially tightened in. So I've got it on about a 2% discount at the moment. And that compares with, uh, I mean, be something closer to about uh, 9 or 10%, I think over an average of the last 12 months. So it has been re-rated. And actually JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, it's kept its premium rating. So there's always a kind of thought when these deals are announced that there might be a bit of merger arbitrage, but actually that really hasn't happened. I've got the JPM fund on about a 2% premium or so at the moment. And that's broadly in line with the average over the previous 12 months. Yeah. So as far as they're concerned, it's all working out pretty well so far. Just these details to sort out. And they're not insignificant, of course, because there are uh, real people involved in the process and pensions and property and so on to be sorted out. Let's move on and talk about, uh, well, let's not talk too much about this one, but we have talked about it a lot. Uh, Third point (laughs) investors. Ticker TPOU, which is our friend uh, Dan Loeb, the hedge fund manager and his team, where we know there's the argy-bargy going on at the moment with activist shareholders. What's the story here? The development this week is that we found out the results of the 2021 exchange facility. And just to remind people, this allowed uh, investors in the investment company to effectively move across to the equivalent master fund, in fact, Third Point's flagship Cayman Fund. Now, this had been set up to transfer across at a 7.5% discount to uh, the Third Point investors' NAV. But I seem to remember the minimum requirement was $10 million uh, in order to do this, though, I think there was some leeway with regard to the board. The result of this is actually, I think, one shareholder tendered their shares through this exchange facility. So that will see, funnily enough, 10.1 million US dollars moving across to the master fund at that 7.5% discount. Now, that was below the maximum of $50 million that had been allocated. So what that means is that, assuming shareholders approve the 2022 exchange facility, the maximum will be increased from that to $75 million. And that's at a narrow discount of, of 2%. So I think we talked about this one a few weeks ago. I think the point was made, why would a shareholder go for the 2021 option at a 7.5% discount when they could wait not that long and switch across at a 2% discount? But, you know, it's, it's a little bit bells and whistles, this. But really, this is all about the board attempting to, to narrow the discount. And the exchange facility is a part of that story. Uh, and it remains to be seen how effective uh, it is. Is there any movement this week in the discount? Well, we've got the discount in at about 13.5% at the moment. I mean, it's probably come in a little bit, to be honest. Its average over the previous 12 months is 15.5%, but it would be wrong to say it's a kind of material re-rating. Okay, so let's uh, move on now and talk about, well, guess what? Fundraising. We know this has been a near record year for fundraising in the investment trust sector, and the taps are still open, it's fair to say. There's a lot more issuance coming through. So let's quickly race through some of these. Let's start with what looks like an interesting newcomer, which is Atrato Onsite Energy, which has the suspended ticker ROOF, R-O-O-F. What can you tell us about uh, their IPO? It's another IPO. Let's mark that. Indeed. And it was a highly successful IPO. So they raised £150 million, but apparently this was oversubscribed multiple times. In other words, they could have if they wished, had a far larger issue at launch. The issue here is that they wanted to minimise it in order to get their capital invested. The manager believes that that £150 million is the maximum that can be deployed within a 12-month period of the IPO. Uh, and again, something we talked about before, the idea of trying to avoid cash drag when you have these new funds. So they've gone for the £150 million. The new shares will begin to trade on Tuesday, 23rd of November, And the fund will invest in UK commercial rooftop solar, and that will aim to provide investors with capital growth and secure index linked income. So it's an annual total return, I think between about 8 and 10% that they're going for, looking to pay a 5p dividend in their first few financial years and then uh, move it on progressively thereafter. Uh, But it's certainly an interesting idea that, you know, solar panels on the roofs of commercial buildings, and then effectively they, they enter into commercial arrangements on a long term indexed power purchase agreements with the occupiers. Yes, well, you can see the attraction of that. It'll be interesting to see how that one goes. And of course, always good to start if you can come to the market and demonstrate that there was a lot of extra demand that was unfulfilled. You would expect that would make the shares would begin trading in a healthy way, shall we say. But presumably also, it will mean an indication that uh, in due course, we might see a Trato coming back to raise some more money in due course, uh, if they realise that demand is out there, and they can uh, find more capacity. Let's move on and talk about another IPO. There haven't been that many this year, but uh, here's a second one. Life Science REIT, ticker LABS, L-A-B-S. 
S might give you a clue to what this one does. It seems to be all the rage to get these informative tickers going. And they also had an IPO. And how did they do? It was another very successful IPO, actually. They raised £350 million. That was against their target of £300 million, So they exceeded it. And again, they had to go through a scaling back exercise in order to kind of hit that $350 million. Those shares will be traded on AIM. Uh, and in fact, they began trading at the end of the week on Friday. The fund will be invested in uh, what they describe as a diversified portfolio of UK properties leased or intended to be leased to tenants operating in the life science sector. So they're targeting an NAV total return of more than 10% per annum and an initial dividend yield of 4% per annum. And the idea is that that grows to 5% in the early years. But yeah, very successful. Um, There's an outfit called Ironstone Asset Management who are the investment uh, advisor on this one. And apparently there is a pipeline of um, I think they were talked about £445 million, pounds, of which £305 million pounds is under exclusivity. So I think they sound pretty confident they can get this money to work. Yes, I think whenever we first heard about this, I was a little bit uh, sceptical about why you would have a, an investment trust that only deals in life science sector property. And of course, the answer is that life science sector properties are quite specialist in their nature, and therefore they require particular um, configuration, if you like. And their tenants, of course, tend to be well, at least the question would be whether they have the capacity to pay in the life science sector, but there's a lot of money going in there. So presumably that is why they are confident about their potential returns. We'll see how that one trades as well. So now we can talk about uh, Nippon Active Value, ticker NAVF. What have they done on the fundraising front? This is a, an update, actually. They're looking for an initial issue of new shares, um, and they're going to make up to 8 million euros of ordinary shares available on the primary bid platform. They're going to be issued at uh, a price print to NAV as at 22nd November plus uh, a 1.5% premium. So the last date for receipt for initial placing orders is in fact Monday, the 22nd of November. Uh, and those new shares, should they be successful, expected to begin trading on the specialist fund segment on the 26th of November. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about Octopus Renewables Infrastructure, ticker ORIT, one of the uh, many successful fundraisings that have been seen in the last few years in the infrastructure sector. What are they proposing to do now? Well, they've come out and they've announced that they're looking to raise up to 70 million new ordinary shares at a price of 105 spot 5p. That would be by placing and a retail offer. And that issue price represents a premium of about 6% or so to their NAV at the end of September and a 4% discount to the closing price just ahead of the announcement. The placing closes on the 2nd of December, and should it be successful, those new shares will begin trading on the 7th of December. But again, they're talking that they've got a significant pipeline of opportunities. They mentioned £1.5 billion in terms of investment opportunities located in the UK, Germany, France, the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, and Finland, so not short of ideas. And they've also got a number of assets under option, which they value at £423 million, uh, and those bilateral negotiations are underway. So again, I think they're quite confident they can get this to work. They noted that the dividend target for their 2021 financial year is 5p, of which 3.7p has already been declared or paid. So that puts them on a prospective yield of what at the at the issue price, would you say? I've got them trading at about 110p uh, on my screen at the moment. And looking at that 5p target, I'm quickly a little bit of mental maths. I'm going to say about 4.4%. Very good. I can always rely on you for the quick maths. Uh, just uh, quickly, how does that compare with the rest of the sector? I mean, how are they trading and uh, what are the yield range at the moment, given they're all trading or most of them are trading on quite significant premiums? You're right. They are trading on premiums. I mean, Octopus, I've got on about a 12% premium at the moment. Uh, and as I mentioned, that yield is probably about 4.5% or so. The average across that renewable energy infrastructure space on a weighted cap basis, it's probably about 5%. On a kind of simple average basis, probably nearer to about 4%. So most of them you'll find in that kind of range. I mean, there's some uh, a little bit more foresight. Solar uh, has got about a 7% yield. Uh, and there are a number as well that are probably in an earlier stage of their lives as well that haven't quite built up their uh, dividend record yet. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, a very different animal, which is the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker R-I-C-A. And they're going to be raising some money, though this is, I think, in a slightly different way and for a slightly different reason. Perhaps you could fill us in on the details of that. So Ruffer came out this week and said they were going to run an open offer, an offer for subscription and an intermediaries offer at a price of 296 spot five. 
And that's quite unusual because uh, with investment trust issuance, invariably the companies come out and say, we will issue at a premium of whatever to the latest NAV or the NAV on a particular date. So they've actually stated the price at which they're going to run this issuance. Existing shareholders will be offered new shares on a one-four basis through the open offer with an excess application facility available. But any shares not allocated to that open offer and excess application facilities will be made available to other investors through the offer for subscription and intermediaries offer. So all in all, there's going to be about 56 million shares available. In theory, that could raise up to 167 million pounds. The latest date for receipt of application forms is the 1st of December. This is subject to shareholder approval. So there will be an EGM on the 3rd of December. And if all that is successful, the new shares will begin trading on the 6th of December. Perhaps you might just take a moment just to explain for people who aren't necessarily familiar with all these terms that the difference between an open offer and an offer for subscription and an intermediaries offer. So the, the point with the open offer, and it's very relevant in this case, and I think why they've decided to do it, is that it gives those existing shareholders the kind of first right to follow their money. So it's kind of like an access opportunity. And it's it's an interesting why they've gone down this particular route. It's worth noting that over the first 10 months of 2021, Ruffer has been very successful in issuing shares out on a regular basis. They've raised about £122 million worth just through what we call kind of tap issuance. That's just regular issuance through the marketplace. But this is a more kind of more structured offering. And one suspects it's it's to appeal to retail shareholders, which is you know an interesting move. And uh, I mean, there'll be some people argue that trying to collect money in one go from retail shareholders is a bit like herding cats. It's not altogether straightforward, but they've decided to adopt this mechanism. I think that's the reason why um, I suspect they've stated a price of 296.5 rather than uh, look to issue at a, just a simple premium to whatever the NAV is at that moment in time. I mean, it's, it's worth just dwelling on that for one second, because of course, most investment trust companies would not go down this route because there's always a danger by the time the actual issuance comes around that the NAV has moved considerably so what looks like a, a kind of small premium to the uh, NAV, which it is at the moment, it's probably on about a 1% or 2% premium, could become a discount or a, quite an extended premium. I think in the case of Ruffer, though, given the way that the portfolios run, it's a, invariably a low volatility return profile. Uh, I mean, to see Ruffer's NAV kind of move on any given month, it's probably 1% or 2% uh, ordinarily. So I guess that would be the expectation. But in theory, at least, the portfolio could kind of swing uh, against this, you could see issuance at a discount. I suspect Ruffer and, and the people advise them would say that's pretty unlikely. And, and frankly, they may have a good point. But it's one of the reasons why you don't normally see uh, issuance run on this basis in, in investment companies. Yes, I think that's uh, very clear. As you say, it's a particular strategy. Uh, and if they do succeed in raising 167 million uh, through the issue of 56 million shares, how big will that uh, make the trust once that's gone through? Um, is it actually just a one for four, effectively, across the whole piece, if they get that amount of money? Yeah, it, it is broadly. So they've got assets of about $660 million or so at the moment. So roughly speaking, probably one for four is about right. But I mean, one of the reasons I think they're doing this is because the demand for their shares has been quite strong, to say the least, over the last 10 months or so. And uh, again, without getting too technical, they've kind of extinguished or they're moving a long way to uh, using up all their issuance powers. So I think this is seen as, as a, an alternative way to kind of meet that demand for their shares. I only asked that question to test your mathematical uh, ability again, Sam, of course. <laughs> That's the only reason. Did I pass? 167 over, uh, you know, compared to 660 million. Well, it's, it's pretty close, I think. So I'll give you a pass yep. on that one. Yep, very good. Okay, Thanks. let's move on and talk about uh, Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust, ticker SBSI. They've been trying to raise some more money. And what was the outcome? They were successful in that. They raised £11 million uh, via an issue through a placing uh, of just over 10 million shares at a price of 105p per share. It's worth noting they've been targeting an issue up to 25 million shares. So obviously, this is a little bit less than that. But, you know, again, they've got a kind of near term pipeline of opportunities and, and the proceeds will be used to invest in those. The new shares begin trading on Monday, the 22nd of November. But it just moves this investment trust on. It launched at the end of last year when it, I think, IPO raised £75 million. So this just gives it a little bit more capital and moves it closer to a market cap of nearer to £100 million. Yeah, so they're sort of, if you like, uh, trying to do it in stages. And uh, perhaps that was a little bit disappointing for them. Who knows? Let's move on and talk about uh, Tufton Oceanic Assets, 
ticker ship, another one of these uh, useful tickers that give you a clue to what they do. They've been looking to raise a bit more money as well. That's right. And uh, they were successful. They raised $39 million. And that was actually an oversubscribed tap issue. 28 million shares were issued at a price of $1.39. They had to scale back the exercise because, as I said, it was oversubscribed. And those new shares began trading on Wednesday. And with what uh, consequence? So they've got a market cap at the moment, not too far off, and this is in sterling, not too far off £300 million. And in terms of the price, has the price moved back up a little bit after that issue? So I've got the price at uh, $1.40. That was at the close of Thursday. So that's just ahead of that issue price. Okay, let's move on and talk about another one with an interesting ticker. This is Urban Logistics REIT. Ticker is SHED, (laughs) S-H-E-D. What's their news on the funding front? Basically, all the resolutions that they proposed at a general meeting were passed and they were related to admission of shares onto the main market, which I think we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, and the implementation of a placing program. So they've got the green light for that. Um, So further to that, they've announced an initial placing of a subscription intermediaries offer, and that's targeting gross proceeds of £200 million. That could go up to £250 million if there is the demand for it. So the issue price will be 170p, and that represents about a 5% premium to their EPRA NTA, which is the equivalent of their NAV, as at the end of September. But uh, they raised 108 million back in July. That was at a price of 155p, and, and that capital has now been deployed or fully committed. But the manager has identified a further pipeline of more than 400 million pounds. So assuming that this additional issuance is successful, intention is to use the net proceeds to acquire a significant part of that pipeline. The issue closes on the 2nd of December. The results announced the following day. And the idea being if they are successful, those new shares will start trading on the 7th of December. Uh, We mentioned before this uh, moving to the main market, which uh, presumably is in the hope that it will then get uh, more demand from other sources. Do you think that this one will go well when it uh, when it does that? Do you think it will have a material impact or will it all be, as it were, discounted in the price before that actually happens? Well, it's worth noting that in moving to the main market, then it becomes eligible for the uh, inclusion within the FTSE All Share. So index buyers, basically. So when we have seen investment trust companies make that move, then you can see uh, quite a pickup in demand for the shares. So uh, I'm sure that Given the size, I've got the market cap of about 569 million. So they're certainly large enough on a size basis. Uh, obviously, it has to be tested in terms of liquidity. Do their shares trade enough? But potentially, you could see a real pickup in demand for index buyers. Okay, so that's the end of the fundraising news. But before we leave this section of the podcast, perhaps we might just quickly mention something which is an interest for some investors. There was a launch of an investment trust called Peters Hill a few weeks ago, and that is backed by Goldman Sachs. It's a Goldman Sachs sort of venture. You might explain what they do. Uh, But the interesting point here is that it wasn't originally classified, I think, as an investment trust, but it is now going to be classified as an investment trust. So perhaps you could just explain what's happened and and why that might have happened. So this is a a company that effectively came to the market earlier this year. I mean, it's a pretty decent size. It's a 3.7 billion pound company, so not insignificant. Effectively, it provides capital. Peters Hill Partner provides capital and what it describes as strategic support to high quality alternative asset management firms who are well positioned for further growth and development. So that all sounds pretty positive. Uh, Goldman Sachs Asset Management are responsible for it, but effectively they take uh, minority stakes in what they describe as alternative asset managers. So when this first came to the market, I think the FTSE classified it, maybe not unsurprisingly, in the asset managers and custodians sector, even though technically the legal form is that it is an investment company. And actually, it is a member of the AIC as well. But now FTSE uh, have looked at it and reconsidered. And the idea is that it will move across to the close end uh, investments universe. uh, And that will be at the 17th of December. So basically, they've reclassified it. Uh, And this has happened before. It's relatively infrequent. But Perhaps it just suggests that this is a slightly different vehicle. It's certainly not a, a, what you call a mainstream investment company, but it is quite large, as I mentioned. So it will have um, some impact on the performance of the uh, investment company sector overall. It will move the dial, not least because certainly when I last looked at it, I think it's trading on a not insignificant premium to its NAV. So that's possibly one to keep an eye on. Yes, and we've had this issue before where you get very large trusts and you have to look quite carefully at the calculations of the way that investment trust performance is measured because if it's on a weighted basis, weighted by the amount of size of the trust, it can have a significant impact 
overall on the movement of investment trust aggregate statistics uh, and also might distort the sector that it's in, the average figures for the sector it's in. And the question is, which sector will it go into, do you think, Simon? Well, as you know, Jonathan, I am a, a member of the august body of the AIC Stats Committee. And, I do uh, know that, and that's why I asked the question, yeah. <laughs> well, we always love debating these kind of meaty issues, so I, I don't want to kind of um, front-run what may be the outcome of those deliberations, but no doubt over the Christmas period, we will take some time to carefully reflect on this. Okay. Very, very cagey. You'll have to listen to a future podcast to find out the answer to that one. So <laughs> before I move on, I might just mention that the Moneymakers Circle this week, we have a profile of Impact Healthcare, one of the healthcare trusts, as its name suggests. And I've also uh, had an interesting conversation with uh, Alistair Lang, one of the directors of Capital Gearing Asset Management, about some of the things they've been doing. They recently produced some results. Uh, and in particular, having a look at the relative attractions of the infrastructure and specialist property trust, both of which they follow quite closely. So that may be of interest to some listeners. So that's it on the fundraising and corporate fronts. Let's move on and talk about uh, some results. And there have been some interesting results out from quite a few well-known investment trusts this week. So we're going to kick off by talking about JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets, ticker J-A-R-A, which has produced some half-year results. That's right. Half year results to the end of August. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of six and a half percent. And that's actually ahead of their long term target of between seven and nine percent per annum. Though, unfortunately, their share price actually came in negative territory. So in total return terms, it was down 2.8 percent. And that was a reflection of the fact that the premium rating narrowed. It had got a little bit extended. It was probably near to about 10, 11 percent. And it's come back in line with NAV. But within the portfolio, there's been a few developments. So Real estate and the transportation allocations, they work very well during this particular period. Currency provided a, a little bit of a tailwind as well, having been negative in previous periods. But the fund started the period 90% invested and finished at 95%. And that was after they invested $28 million primarily into transportation in Asia-Pacific real estate markets. They also made a maiden commitment to JP Morgan's US real estate mezzanine debt strategy, uh, and the expectation there is that it should boost income. And just on that basis, they've paid two quarterly dividends of 1p each, and that's in line with the dividend target at the time of the IPO between 4 to 6p per annum. Yes, this is an interesting trust, which, uh, as it happens, is featured as a profile in the uh, latest annual edition of the Investment Trust Handbook, which uh, I can't forbear from mentioning is coming out on the 14th of December. You can get a hard copy or you can get it as a free download, a free ebook that goes with it. So uh, an unbeatable opportunity, of course, I would say that. But the, one of the interesting things about that comes out of this profile is that while this trust is designed to deliver steady, relatively modest, but persistent real returns by investing in uh, JP Morgan's very large real asset business on a global scale, the shares are equated in sterling, but the underlying assets are mostly dollar-based, so there can be quite a significant impact from the movements in the currency, which we've seen quite a lot of in the last uh, couple of years, obviously, with Brexit and so on. Anyway, an interesting one to look at. Let's move on and talk about uh, Chelverton Growth Trust, ticker CGW. This is quite a small trust, but uh, perhaps you can update us on its results, Simon. Yeah, it is a very small fund, actually. At the end of its reporting period, so these are annual results for the year to the 31st of August, I think it had net assets of just over £3 million. So it's been almost in kind of realisation mode now for a number of years. I think there's been about a 70 plus percent reduction in its share capital. Ironically, the results were strong. The NAV was up 42% in that year to the end of August. That compared to a rise of 37% for the MSCI Small Cap UK Index. And in share price terms, uh, it moved up 98%, though it still remains on, on quite a big discount. I've got it on about a 20 23% discount at the moment. But clearly, it is very small. And the chairman noted in the result that the fund size had been reduced to a size that just, and I quote, makes it unviable in the longer term to continue with the current structure. So the board is reviewing how to return funds to shareholders in the most effective way. Okay, so I think we'll be saying goodbye to that one really shortly. Let's move on and talk about Troy Income and Growth, ticker TIGT. They've had some annual results to the 30th of September. That's right. And a difficult period in relative terms, in absolute terms, uh, positive return. So it was NAV total return up 10.2% versus uh, a rise of the FTSE all share up nearly 28%. In share price terms, this fund has a zero discount policy. So broadly in line with that NAV return, it came in about 9.6%. 
But effectively, the story here is that the underperformance uh, against the wider UK market was a result of the fund's bias towards more defensive quality companies, particularly as those economically sensitive areas performed well kind of post the vaccine rollout about this time last year. Uh, And they made the point that almost all of the relative underperformance took place in the first half of the financial year. But income is, uh, perhaps as his name would suggest, is an important part of the story. They decided to rebase the dividend. We we, we knew about this last year. And in fact, the revenue per share came in at uh, 1.68p. That was down from the the previous year. And they paid dividends of 1.96p. So in other words, the dividend was covered. But it was down 29.5% from the previous year. Uh, And that was very much a board decision. They reduced the, the quarterly dividend. Uh, in recognition of the structural impact of the pandemic on the UK equity dividend landscape um, and the portfolio really looking to kind of prioritise lower yielding companies with better dividend growth. I think possibly the only other thing to note from the results or key point to note from the results is that Francis Brooke, who's been involved in the management of this one for a number of years, relinquishes his fund management duties at the end of this calendar year. Uh, we knew about this already. And Hugo, you and Blake Hutchins will continue to co-manage the fund. Yeah, so I guess the interesting point here is that, as you said, they made that change uh, not so long ago uh, about the dividend to rebase it, uh, recognition of the fact that uh, maybe the dividend capacity of UK equities had been permanently, not just uh, affected by the pandemic, but on a more permanent basis. But of course, this is a big issue for trust in the UK equity income sector, which is where Troy Income and Growth sits. Most of them are very keen to maintain their dividend history. Some of them are on the list of the AIC's dividend heroes. So it's interesting that they have a a zero discount policy, as you say, and uh, the shares presumably have been uh, performed perhaps even not that as well as they have done if they hadn't had that zero discount policy. Yeah, I mean, the zero discount policy is a kind of key part of the story. And, you know, this is obviously part of the Troy Asset Management Stable. So it sits alongside personal assets and securities trust of Scotland. But in this particular period, they did buy back quite a few shares. So 27.4 million shares were repurchased under that policy. And at the same time, they issued 0.6 million during that time. But over the long term, it has allowed some growth. So the the market cap is about 250 million pounds or so on this one at the moment. Right. So effective, they're sort of prioritising slow and steady rather than something more dramatic, which is very much the Troy style and approach. Let's move on and talk about uh, Montanara European Smaller Companies, ticker MTE. Uh, They've had some interim results to the 30th of September. They have indeed, in which time they performed very well, actually. Their NAV was up 25%. That compared with a rise of 8.6% for the MSCI Europe Small Cap XUK Index. Share price total return up 24.2%. But uh, George Cook has managed this one for um, nearly 10 years, actually. Now, I think January 2012, he took this portfolio on. And it does have a, a quite distinct growth bias to it. So if you look at the portfolio at the end of September, 31% was invested in the information technology sector, while healthcare and industrials represented 22% and 20% respectively. And this during a period when uh, small cap has had an interesting uh, ride, and we've got a fantastic track record, Montanaro European smaller companies. Yeah, really strong, actually. So if you look at it over the last five years, they're up 220% in NAV total return terms. I mean, if you look at, you know, a kind of relevant index, something like the FTSE Europe small cap X UK index, that was up uh, about 84%, so a marked outperformance. And it's also outperformed its its peer group as well. So you've got funds such as TR European Growth, which has outperformed the index, but uh, it's up 109%. You've got JP Morgan European Discovery, that's up 104%. So the Montanaro Fund has got marked outperformance over that long term. And I think that a lot of that comes down to stock selection, but particularly the growth bias of the manager. Yeah, it's been a good period for that style, it's, it's fair to say. Okay, let's move on and talk about another popular trust, which is HG Capital Trust, ticker HGT, and they've had a quarterly update. This is in the a private equity trust. That's right. And I think it's always worth keeping an eye on the quarterly updates for HG Capital. It is um, you know, one of the leading private equity funds. And, and again, it's been a very strong period. So that three months to the, the end of September, their NAV was up um, not too far off 12%. And in fact, year to date, so the first nine months of 2021, it was up over 35%. So what's driving that growth? Well, it's really about the profit growth in the underlying investment. So I think they gave some stats that of the top 20 underlying holdings, which represents about 81% of the portfolio over the last 12 months, they're seeing sales growth of 25% in EBITDA. So profits growth essentially up 29%. So quite strong numbers. 
They're making new investments as well. So in this three-month period, they've deployed £112 million worth in three new and four further investments. Um, and they've also generated about £87 million from five full and partial realisations. So quite a bit of investment activity going on as well. Net assets stand about £1.85 billion now. So this, this is an investment trust that has seen substantial growth over the last 10 years. And of that uh, £1.85 billion, just over £300 million was in liquid resources. So they're still sitting uh, with some cash, with some firepower to deploy in new investments. Indeed. And this is one of the private equity trusts that, unlike some others, as you say, does uh, trade around par most of the time or even at a premium, which compares unfavorably, you might argue, or favorably, depending on your point of view, with the best of the sector, many of which are trading on quite significant uh, discounts, as we mentioned earlier. Let's uh, talk now about Next Energy Solar Fund, ticker NESF. They've had some results also to the 30th of September. Indeed, uh, in which time their NAV total return was in positive territory. They're up 7.9% actually. Um, so the NAV was up 4.2p and that reflected short-term power price uh, forecast increases, uh, particularly on the unhedged portion of the revenues and also an increase in the short-term uh, inflation forecast as well. So that both moved in this investment company's favour in that period. Electricity generation was 1.1% above budget. So what does that mean to shareholders? Well, they paid out total dividends of 3.58p and they remain on track to deliver a target dividend of 7.16p for the year ending 31st of March 2022. So um, in terms of the cover, that cash dividend cover before script suddenly came in one times, so it was fully covered. Um, and the portfolio capacity has increased by 10% and they've added five solar assets during the period. So Next Energy Solar is kind of pushing on. Okay, let's talk about another trust now, which has also had uh, some results. It's a maiden results, I think it's fair to say, and they are uh, going uh, into the unknown. And that is a Seraphim Space Investment Trust, ticker SSIT, <laughs> boldly going where others fear to tread. And uh, what do their initial quarterly results look like? Yes, I mean, it's very early days. I mean, this came to the market back in July when they raised 178 million, though there have been some additional uh, share issuance subsequently. Well, so far, so good, really. The NAV per share is up 6%. Uh, so it came in at 104p at the end of September. And actually, net assets had grown as well to £221 million. Pounds. Um, and at the end of September, the, the portfolio was actually valued at £99 million. Pounds, so there's still quite a lot of cash or liquid resources of about £124 million, And that was equivalent to 56% of the NAV. But they talk a lot about the pipeline. In fact, since that period end, they have completed a follow-on and one new investment. So they've already deployed additional cash of £23 million. Pounds, and certainly the investment team seem quite excited about the opportunities that they're seeing in this area. Well, this one has certainly caught the imagination, I think, uh, in a way that uh, sometimes something new does. But as you say, very early days, a lot of media attention, of course, on space at the moment with various billionaires firing themselves up into the atmosphere and coming back. Let's talk about Worldwide Healthcare Trust next. That's ticker WWH, which has been a core holding in many people's portfolios for a number of years. But uh, their interim results, not so good this time. Yeah, quite a period for Worldwide Healthcare Trust. So these were interim results for the six months to the end of September. The NAV total return was 0.4%. That compared with a rise of 13% for the benchmark, the MSCI World Healthcare Index. Share price total return was down slightly, actually down about 1.5%. But, uh, you know, really interesting investment managers report. Sven Bohor and Trevor Polishchuk of uh, Orbimed, highly experienced in this area. Uh, and they talked about the underperformance as a result of the overweight exposure to emerging biotech and in particular China. Um, and they noted that there'd been a market rotation away from more growth orientated names to more value and away from small cap to large caps. And that you know doesn't suit the way that this portfolio uh, has been set out. Um, but despite that, there is no change to the strategy. They remain committed. In fact, they're excited about the, the value opportunity that they're seeing at the moment. That's evidenced by the fact they've increased the gearing. So during this period, I think it averaged uh, about 11%. That's been stepped up. It's uh, It was at the end of September, it was nearly 15%. Um, so they talk about how some of the headwinds against the sector, such as the, the political overhang, a lot of talk about US drug reform. Um, they believe that that's now uh, gone away. Questions over the federal uh, drug administration in, in the US have now appeared to be resolved. So they are very positive about the opportunity set that they're seeing there. But certainly for this period, at least, uh, they did underperform on a relative basis. 
I think that's a very fair comment. And let's uh, move on now. I've talked about a couple of commercial property trusts. Uh, let's kick off with AEW UK REIT, ticker AEWU. This is one of the better rated commercial property trusts, and uh, they've had some interim results. That's right. Interim results to the end of September, in which time their NAV per share was up 11% in shareholder total return terms. It came in about 28% actually. So uh, what's going on here? Well, we saw the valuation of the property portfolio up 9.8% on a like-for-like basis. And that was a a reflection of their industrial assets that saw some good uplifts. Uh, And at the end of September, the portfolio contained 35 properties and was valued at just short of £207 million. So it's probably one of the smaller commercial property funds. Uh, In terms of the dividends, well, the total dividends came in at 4p per share. And AEWK REIT has the distinction of uh, being, I think, the only mainstream property company not to cut its dividend in the early stages of the pandemic last year, which is obviously quite a difficult time for property in general. Um, But that 4p per share for the interim period, that's in line with the annual target of 8p per share. Uh, And as I mentioned, that's all been unchanged throughout the pandemic. In terms of the EPRA earnings, earnings per share, they came in at 3.45p, and that was up slightly from 3.41p for the six months to the end of September last year. It's also worth keeping an eye on rent uh, and the rent collection levels with these property companies. Uh, And to date, 87% of the rent due for September had been collected, but those numbers rise to 99% for June and March. In other words, they are collecting the vast majority of their rent. Okay, well, let's move on now and talk finally about another property trust, and that is uh, value and indexed property income, ticker VIP. This is uh, one that has been on my radar for a little while, for a few months, because of it has been changing its uh, structure. Well, they've had some interim results. Tell us about those, first of all. That's right. Interim results to the end of September again. So we've seen the NAV per share uh, increase by about 8.6%. Uh, the share price is up just under 2%. But as you say, it's, it's in transition, this one. So where we are at the end of September is that the UK property element of the portfolio represented about 59%. UK equities, 16%. And there was also quite a lot of cash as well, 25% in cash. Uh, the property portfolio um, appears to be forming quite well. So total return up 10.5% in the period. And that compared to a rise of 7.6% for the MSCI quarterly property index. So they've been buying unsurprisingly new properties. So eight new properties were bought during the period for £22.5 million. And in terms of the equity portfolio, that direct equity portfolio, that's valued at around £30 million. And they've got 10 investments remaining. But certainly, as I mentioned, the the allocation towards industrial property, industrials um, doing quite well at the moment, and that certainly benefited them. Um, but they also made a note that uh, they did have an exposure to Civitas social housing that we discussed earlier, uh, and that was a disappointing performer in the period, and they decided to sell it due to poor governance. They've declared dividends of 6p per share in respect of the half year, and that compares with 5.8p in the previous half year, and the revenue earnings per share came in at 3.35p versus 3.27p for the previous uh, comparable period. You might just remind us uh, what the background of this one is and why they're changing their strategy. I mean, this trust has been around for a long time and had a pretty good track record, particularly on the property side. Uh, perhaps you could just remind us the history of this and as I say why it's going through this uh, this change at the moment. Yes, that's right. I mean, it, it was a hybrid, a genuine hybrid fund in as much as the property and uh, the UK equities. And actually, I think for a long time, it sat in the UK equity income subsector. But the decision was made to kind of tilt it towards property. It probably got left behind a little bit. The discount had kind of widened out. And even now it still sits on a not insubstantial discount. But at the time for UK equity income, it was on a very wide discount. So um, again, as you note, the property side of it has performed well historically. And that's run by Olim Property, who are also involved uh, in the management of the Scottish American investment company property portfolio, and they have a good track record uh, of being quite effective, active managers. So as I said, it's probably off most people's radars, but the idea is that this, by kind of retilting the portfolio, that it comes back into consideration for more people. And that was the reason why it piqued my interest, because uh, if you're interested in investing in property with particularly inflation-linked assets in them, this looked like a potentially interesting opportunity once it becomes more of a pure vehicle. But uh, how does it trade in the market, uh, this one, Simon? So it's on a discount of about 16% or so at the moment, and that compares with an average over the previous 12 months of 21%. So we have seen that that rating narrow in a little. I mean, it has traded out as wide as a 32% discount in that 12-month period. 
Okay, so uh, that brings us to the end of the normal topics. I think there's one other topic we might just briefly mention here, Simon, and that is the uh, Annual Investment Trust Awards were held this week. That is an event uh, sponsored by the trade magazine Investment Week, and uh, you were there. And what was your uh, takeaway from this uh, event, and what were the highlights of the awards? Gosh, uh, highlights, so many, so many to mention. Well, no, look, it was a great occasion, as always. The first time, I think, in two years that there's actually been a kind of proper industry black tie event and a chance to, you know, mark the achievements of a number of investment companies and a a number of individuals across the sector as well. So probably the big winners on the night, number of funds in the Bailey Gifford stable. So Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, perhaps unsurprisingly, Scottish American also won an award for Bailey Gifford, as did Pacific Horizon. Uh, JP Morgan also picked up a number. So Mercantile Investment Trust, JP Morgan Smaller Companies and JP Morgan Emerging Markets. But again, perhaps unsurprisingly, Bailey Gifford got the Group of the Year Award. And I think that uh, they certainly won it last year as well, though that was all a virtual ceremony, sadly, uh, given the circumstances of last year. But um, I think that probably the kind of key memory for me for last night was the um, the kind of Lifetime Achievement Award, which is a long-standing and prestigious award, and actually was awarded to two individuals last night. So uh, Ian Sayers, formerly of the AIC, who retired from the AIC not that long ago, uh, was honoured for his work across the industry. And we, we've talked about Ian on a number of occasions before. Uh, and also James Anderson, the manager of Scottish Investment Trust. Uh, and both gentlemen did little video uh, acceptance speeches, uh, which were very touching in their own right, and clearly uh, although operating in very different ways, both achieved an awful lot for the sector. Yes, I think that's very fair to say. I, I would uh, endorse that. And uh, if they had to share it, well, well and good. But um, in the meantime, they don't have an award for investment trust analysts, do they, Simon? Not anymore. What a Got shame. Rid of that one. Okay, well, perhaps next year they can get up it to 28 awards. I mean, you, you <laughs> I guess over your lifetime, if you don't win one of them, then you've probably got been in the wrong business. But anyway, um, it's all good. It all brings uh, publicity to the sector, which is what we like. And uh, of course, we do believe the investment trust sector has an awful lot going for it, which is why we do what we do. So that's it this week. Uh, Next week, we'll be back again talking about the news next week, uh, whatever that may be. And we look forward to uh, speaking to you then. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.